Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Zachary J. Lechner. He is assistant professor of history at Thomas Nelson Community College in Hampton, Virginia. This is Hampton, not Hampton Roads, right? Well, we are, Roads, in the, we are in the Hampton Roads area, but this, we are sitting in Hampton, in Hampton Virginia. Hampton, Virginia, yes. which, I, which I should say, uh, you know, Southern historian nerd alert, was founded by uh, slaves freeing themselves in 1861, I think, is, is when the community started to develop in Hampton. So it's the oldest free black community in America, really, uh, founded by freed uh, blacks. I think, yeah, I think the community stems actually from the 17th century. I mean, that's, the, the, that's what the garbage trucks say. That's anyway. what the garbage but, trucks yeah, say. But yeah, then the, yeah. uh, the but the, it's the, uh, it's the people, a lot of those people left when the Civil War came. That's right. And uh, then their, what had been their property freed themselves mm-hmm. and sought for safety behind the Union lines. So this is, that's right. this is it. Hampton, the Hampton Institute, all the rest of this stuff. This that's is right. The Great Strike, as W.E.B. Du Bois once said. Right? <laughs> that's right. So, uh, you've written a fascinating book. Uh, just came out from the University of Georgia Press. What, like last week? Yeah. 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 The South of the Mind: American Imaginings of White Southernness, nineteen sixty nineteen eighty. So, just where the I guess more dissertations are being written about the Civil Rights era than probably any other period in American history. I, I, I think I've 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 seen that that that's true in Britain. Uh, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. and I, I'm pretty sure that's true in American history over in the states too. It, it's yeah, it seems popular. Yeah, yeah. it's very. But so you kind of did something different, because you started sort of in the civil rights era, but you 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 say first imaginings of white southernness. Let's break that apart. Okay. Um, white. <laughs> so African Americans aren't involved in this story. Well. Not entirely. I mean, because was well, largely I will say because you know mostly the people who are the imaginings are of white white people, southerners, white yeah. southerners, That's what and you're... they're and they're largely being imagined by other white people. Yeah, so, yeah. although it's interesting. I mean, it, you do a couple places. I mean, we've got Vernon Jordan shows up saying mm-hmm. something. So there are yeah. northern or blacks from outside the South mm-hmm. thinking about white Southerners and mm-hmm. assessing white Southerners in, in interesting ways. Right, and we have, you know, Louis Lomax, who's from Boston, Georgia, going back during the early 1960s or mid-1960s and, you know, kind of checking in to see what's what's, mm-hmm. what's happened since the Civil Rights Act has been passed. But, yeah. but yeah, no, you're right. It's, it's, mostly, it's mostly white people talking about other, what they, you know, their perceptions of other white people. Yeah, yeah. and it's... And it's at that really, it's a really interesting moment um, when the civil rights movement is transitioning to something else. It's right in the middle of that period, and then all of a sudden, we have a southern president. Uh, you know, uh, you start with a great anecdote with Richard Goodwin writing a sort of a praise, which could have come from one of the southern agrarians of, of Vanderbilt University. That's right. Um, yeah. And so who is Richard Goodwin, and why is it strange to uh, uh, find him saying things that, you know, that you'd almost find, and I'll take my stand? 
Well, Richard Goodwin uh, was was an aide to to John F. Kennedy. He was an aide to to Lyndon Johnson. Um, you know, worked a lot with Johnson on the issue of civil rights. Um, also wrote speeches for the both of them. And then he was also an aide to to Robert F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, I, I think in the seventies, he had some kind of affiliation with Rolling Stone magazine. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, also and, wrote an angry letter to or about. Tom Wolfe's attack on the New Yorker. I know, I know that from reading. Oh, is that right? When Tom Wolfe died, yeah, and okay. and Larry later married Doris Kearns, mm-hmm. who was writing a biography of LBJ. That's right, right, and he was also you know if anyone's ever seen the movie Quiz Show, you know he was he was one of the um, I don't right. know if he was the invest, one of the investigators in Quiz Show and the Quiz Show scandals of the fifties, but. Yeah, he's a Jewish Bostonian, you know, he's, um, I I used him because he's really not the kind of um, person, uh, some of his pedigree and background, you just wouldn't really think would be somebody who would be coming out, you know, in 1972, like praising the White South and saying like, you know, hey guys, we got to maybe kind of look to the White South, they they seem to have like maybe remembered something that we seem to have, the rest of us seem to have forgotten as non-Southerners. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he talks a lot about modern man. Yeah. And by modern man, I think he's really talking about non, non-Southerners. So it's a very interesting way of immediately yeah. establishing in your, in your sort of narrative um, that this is not just conservatives or reactionaries in the rest of America imagining an ideal white South. That's right. I mean, there is some of that. Obviously, you chose to do that, deploy that anecdote, Mm -hmm. you know, to really drive that home immediately. Right. Well, because one of the things I argue in the the book is that, yeah, it's this imaginings of the White South, positive imaginings of the White South are happening on kind of, you know, both both ends of the political spectrum. Right. So it's not a right-wing thing. It's not necessarily a left-wing thing. And even, I think, I'm thinking about it, even negative imaginings uh, could happen from... uh, of the South are going to happen even from, say, a racist white Bostonian. Oh, yeah, that's not me. That's, no. we're, we're not like that. And, in fact, that's, that's the argument, you know, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, you know, during the busing crisis, like, you know, we're, yeah, that's, that's we're, not we're, not, we're not segregationists, right. you know. That's right, not, right. It's not about race. You know? So you, you go through, um, I, I don't know if there's a particular order to the chapters, but you go through various different types of imaginings. Yes. What do you mean... Uh, we're going to circle back to method and, and sort of standpoint, because I think you and I are going to have a little disagreement. Mm-hmm. It'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a little, but the, I, I think you're, I mean, and why I'm saying, I'll say straight up, I think your observations are fantastic. I'm not sure about the premises. Mm-hmm. But the, you begin um, with, oh, let me find my table of contents again. You begin with uh, looking first of all, at the many faces of the South. And you, for, first of all, to, these are three different images of the South. The first is, I think, the most familiar to probably all the people listening to the podcast would be the Vicious South. What do you mean by the Vicious South? The Vicious South is that, I think, that image that we think of when we, when we think about the White South during the Civil Rights Movement, the most prominent one. And that's, you know, the, the shorthand for it is, you know, the images of Birmingham police sicking attack dogs on, on, on you know, useful black protesters or spraying them with water hoses. It's, it's, the, it's the South is racist and, 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 and redeemable. You yeah. know, the South at its worst. Everything, it's, everything that America is not I supposed just, to be. I just watched Mississippi Burning for the first time. That's that's vicious, vicious, yeah. That's as, that's a, speaking of shorthand. That's the vicious South. That's so. basically uh, you've got. Um, it's interesting because the protests about it were it didn't show uh, black activists. 
Um, man, there's a lot. There's a lot more to say about that film. Mm -hmm. that is basically uh, the whites, the segregationists. I think are shown accurately in the sense of what they want, mm -hmm. but they're all vicious, depraved, and also stupid. Yes. And basically, they all need to be shot. That's I right. mean, that's really the killing's too good for them mm -hmm. in the end. You know, mm -hmm. that's certainly the way as you watch it. Cause it's a good movie. Mm -hmm. That's the way you get keyed up. You just want to like shoot everybody. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're you're willing to uh, you're willing to almost endorse the tactics of when the G FBI's when, when Gene Hackman tortures people or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're like, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, who de who deserves it more than this? You know, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. That's that's the image. I mean, that's the image of the vicious, vicious South during the '60s. Yeah. I mean, um, Black like me is a strange. I've I've never read Black like me. Only uh, is it the last gentleman Walker Percy has. Uh, his his I think his protagonist encounters a black like me uh, journalist and finds it all very silly and you know rid ridiculous. But yeah, well, I mean, there I mean, in, in a way that that it is kind of a ridiculous concept. You know, the, yeah. the idea that a white person could could know what it feels like to be a black person just right. by blackening their skin. Um, Seemingly rather unconvincingly, but at least according to the account, like the white, whites in the South were willing to, to buy into the buy into the conceit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean that's uh, that was you know a, a very much a celebrated book. Yes, yeah, very celebrated. And, and yeah. Got a lot of got him a lot of uh, Griffin, a lot of publicity. John Henry. Griffin. So that's the vicious South. That's a and that's a, it, it. It's a it's a scapegoat for the rest of the nation. That's right. Mm -hmm. you know, if you kill it, then you will be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's a cancer. It's a cancer on an otherwise uh, healthy America. Right. You know? Yeah. And otherwise equal, equal, and and uh, and uh, you know, insert other positive adjective here. You know, America. The second category is the changing South, and this for you is represented by the most popular book ever read written about the South. I mean, let's just you know, everyone genuflect. And the direction of Harper Lee's royalty checks, yeah. uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, who doesn't read it in high school now? I right. mean, Shakespeare is, I think, second to Harper Lee, mm -hmm. right? Right. And it's interesting because I think that uh, a lot of people, at least the high school students I've talked to and high school teachers, when they teach it, they probably get much more of the vicious South out of it. Mm-hmm. But you see it as certainly from Harper Lee's perspective, it's the changing South. So what's the changing South? Well, the changing South, you know, is is this is this notion that okay, the South has has its problems. You know, the right. South has has a race problem, um, and Harper Lee would obviously would obviously admit that. But there are there are good white folks in the South. Okay, Atticus Finch is you know, the quintessential good white Southerner. Mm -hmm. Later in the seventies, Jimmy Carter will be in contrast to George Wallace, another good mm -hmm. white Southerner. So the idea is that you know basically. Harper Lee, one of the things she argues is that, you know, the problem with, with the South is, is kind of individual racism, you know. The problem with racism is it's not a structural issue. So as long as you have, you know, kind of enough good, decent, moderate, if edging maybe a little toward, you know, liberal on the racial uh, scale um, or spectrum, as long as you have enough people like that, Things can change. The South can change. The South can solve its own racial problems. So the problem of of, of Southern racism is really an individual problem. It's mm -hmm. the problem of you know racist, w largely working class mm -hmm. whites like uh, like you know Bob Ewell. You know this just like vicious. Who's Bob Ewell? Bob Ewell is um, 
is uh, the gentleman who will attack Atticus's kids at the at the right. end of the at the end of the novel and be killed by by the rec- by the recluse uh, Boo, yeah, Bradley. Boo Bradley. So he he's he's what uh, Alison Graham, the the scholar, would describe as the cracker from hell. You know that was yeah. that was common to a lot of oh, uh, yeah. you know literature and film of the yeah 50s the Tobacco and 60s. Road um, is yeah. the sort of beginning. That's part of the vicious mm-hmm. South, but yeah. it's not definitely. Yeah. It's even um, I just read in, in, for a Southern conference a couple years ago. Uh, Southern History Conference, I read Lanterns in the Levee for the first time. And William Alexander Percy from, you know, very upper class, upper crust Mississippian mm-hmm. describing the crackers from hell mm-hmm. as basically, this is written, I guess, is it written in 1940, 1942? He describes mm-hmm. them as fascist agents who, it's almost as if they're fascists who have been parachuted into the Pine Hills of Mississippi. <laughs> and he goes on for a couple pages uh, it, yeah, he's a paternalist racist, but mm-hmm. his hate is reserved for Theodore Bilbo and James K. Vardaman mm-hmm. and and all the people they represent, right. the, the crackers from hell. Right. Well, Percy's part of that changing South too. I mean, because yeah, he is. because yeah, in in Har- in the special issues special issue on the South and Harper's Hill. He'll, in 1965, like he'll write a piece, you know, basically saying, you know, that the South is changing, and the fact the South has lessons to teach mm-hmm. the rest of the nation right. about how to reform itself uh, and, racially. And George Wallace becomes part of the changing South. Um, how do you how do you see George Wallace? I'm thinking the George Wallace who in a wheelchair. Oh, okay. Crippled George Wallace. Yeah, okay. Mar- Marcher almost. He's been. Gone through the crucible. He okay. spent time on the cross. So in the nineties, you're talking. I'm about talking the about the seventies, mid seventies. I mean, you know, meeting Jesse Jackson, okay. you know, all the rest of that stuff, shaking hand, and then repent. The repentant. It's like this is. I, I'm not sure that other. Um, this is a sort of southern imagining of itself. Uh huh. But we could have a repentant South. Right. Um, right. It's that's that's part of evangelical religion. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And that's that's definitely I think George Wallace's sort of that's sort of what he represents to a lot of people mm-hmm. yeah I mean he certainly he'll yeah he'll reject the segregationist sure. stance and he'll try to try to make inroads I think yeah, what you're referring to in the 70s to kind of be more of a mainstream mm-hmm. dem- Democrat and uh, you know I, I think he has limited success he does but he, se- he seems to be have been accepted at least at the time maybe just for purely political reasons mm-hmm. he was accepted by lots of other people on the other side mm-hmm. yeah yeah but I don't. I've, I've only I've only read little bits of his autobiography, which is which is highly entertaining. Um, Wallace's autobiography. Oh yeah. Wait, which one is that? Jeez, I forget which one it is, but it's the one where he talks about how you could. Um, we can get to this, but that you could convince a northerner anything about the South. He 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 says you could you know you could get them to believe anything if you you know that they we ate alligators you know that we had that you know my sister with three heads uh-huh. you know or yeah. eight toes or something like that 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 northerners you know Yankees will believe anything about a southerner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of George Wallace, let's uh, I'm going to skip over to talk about mas- the masculine South. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said to you in the email, this is particularly. Uh, Poignant since Burt Reynolds just died, <laughs> right, um, right? And one of the examples you have of the masculine South is deliverance. So, what does deliverance tell us about being a man, a Southern man? Oh, well, it's, it's all too, I can think of is rape. It's yeah. too, well, that's that's that can't that might be part of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's in, a, in short, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to be a man in the South in mm-hmm. the in the early nineteen seventies. So, Deliverance is is a popular film directed by the Englishman John Borman. It's it's based on an adaptation of a novel. 
uh, by uh, James Dickey. The, the, uh, who's really a poet. poet. Yeah. yeah, the poet, yeah. University <laughs> of South Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you know, it's it's a story of, uh, as the trailer says, three uh, three suburban guys, or four suburb, suburban guys. Um, and but there are there are southerners, they're middle class southerners. You know they live in the air conditioned suburbs of Atlanta. It's, so it's very much a new South. They're they're coming out of Walker Percy South mm-hmm. and going into Erskine Caldwell's sort of Tobacco Road South. Yeah, that's that's right, that's right. And it's not a, it's not a comfortable it's not a comfortable place. And so you know it's it's a it's 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 a it's a book and it's a film about masculinity in crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I argue that it's, you know, I think kind of the common argument is that it presents the rural South as just kind of this hellish, terrifying landscape. That's kind of the standard interpretation. And, you know, I would, uh, you know, I would say, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty true. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's something in the South, there's something in this rural hinterland that these middle-class suburban guys have lost. Mm-hmm. This kind of, this virility that they mm-hmm. have to go there. To, to get back. So even though it, it may present mountain people as southern mountain people as kind of backward. Well, they're they're and, unionists for one thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, right. I forget where Dickie's from, but there is definitely, there's going to be the Flatlander, sort of one of the Flatlander mountain thing is, first of all, they they march with Sherman, some of them. Mm, and then they yeah. voted Republican. Right? Yeah. You know, there, there's yeah. always, that's part of the post-war <laughs> tension with mountain people. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they're a very, they're, they're a standoffish lot. And yeah. um, and they certainly are in the in, 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 in the film. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the famous, you know, uh, rave scene is, is, you know, it's kind of, um, kind of interpreted as, as, as the mountain people's retaliation for the, uh, the pending rape of their of their landscape because mm-hmm. they're you know the river uh, in the in the fictional river in the in the book in, in North Georgia is about to is about to be dammed and this yeah. these people is kind of their their area is about to be gonna it's gonna be underwater mm-hmm. you know and so it's like that that terrifying but some somehow appealing and vigorous and masculine uh, rural white South like striking back mm-hmm. and I think the rape scene is a kind of a very uh, heavy-handed you know uh, indication of that so you're saying that that um, Americans uh, outside the South then imagined that there was that they could learn something about what it means to be a man from movies like deliverance I, I think yeah I think I think so or yeah. smoking in the band right? yeah right right because I mean in and this message is even is even clearer in the novel than it is in the in the film but you know, Dickie talks about at the at the end how the character of Ed, who's kind of the he's he's played by John Voight in mm-hmm. the film, and he's this advertising executive. You know, John Voight is you know a very handsome man in the early seventies, but he's Ed. The character is described in the book as kind of being balding and overweight, and um, you know he's he's somebody who's kind of let himself go. And so by the time the novel ends, Ed has you know saved his friends. You know he's had to kill in order to survive. He lost 30 pounds. Lost, <laughs> lost 30 pounds, apparently, perhaps. Uh, no, he looked good at the beginning. Uh, that's the thing. But, um, but he, he, he as, as Dickie says, you know, he feels the river inside of him. He, 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 he will carry this experience with him. Mm-hmm. He's no longer the, you know, the effete advertising executive. Now he's the, now he's the more vigorous, virile But, but that's just, I mean, let me push back a little bit. That's yeah. just Greek. That's just, that's just like the, the, yeah. the, the character undergoing an Aegon. You sure. know, a, a, a contest. What makes this southern? Well, I mean, where? But where is it taking? Where does it take place? Yeah, where is it taking place? What's the era in which it's taking place? I mean, yeah. as, as you said very aptly, it's a, it's an allegory about the about the new south. You know, what the what the, what 
what the South is, is losing as it you know continues to become more integrated yeah. economically with the with the rest Air of the country. Conditioned. Air conditioned, golf course, yeah, suburban, suburbanized, you know, yeah. was, you know, the the continued slide into. You I, ne- know, I never had thought about putting Last Gentleman and Deliverance together, but that would make an interesting uh, for an interesting course mm-hmm. in the new, yeah. interesting course in the new South. Mm-hmm. Um, George Wallace is part of also part of the masculine South. Um, why him in particular? I mean, George Wallace is you know probably the most prominent. I mean, one of the at least the most prominent Southerners of, of his time. Yeah. I mean, he refers to himself as a professional Southerner. You know, mm. never right. never really been able to figure out exactly what that means. Well, it's like know, a, it's like a professional Scotsman. It's like <laughs> right. it makes a big deal out of being a Scotsman yeah. who always drinks his whiskey with water on the side. Who you know yeah. pretends to like haggis? I mean, actually, haggis is delicious. But yeah, I mean, that would be that's sort of I think George Wallace. I think that's what I was referring to in his autobiography. I think he learned to do that when he was in the Air Force. Yeah, he's 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 a constant. He sees himself as his his job as he, to be a constant defender of the South. Yeah, you know, at at all times defending what he perceives to be the, the traditional Southern way of life. So yeah, and 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 he does that in a in his whole. Persona is just almost this kind of hyper masculine performance. Because he's like a, I mean, I, if you look at the picture of him standing in the schoolhouse door, yeah, he's short. He's yeah, a little he's bantam a short, he, of a, well, a character. Right. He's yeah. He's referred to as a little, you know, little bantam cock of yeah, a man. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, kind of certainly probably had a Napoleon's complex. You know. Um, <laughs> but yeah. But you know, if you look at his his body language, there he's short, but he's yeah, standing yeah, upright. Up. And, you know, the, the chin is up. He is know, like a bantam cock. I mean, yeah. literally, mm-hmm. his chest inflated and everything like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. And so. He yeah he exudes this despite his stature he exudes this this kind of this strong like hyper masculine you know persona yeah and uh, you know and, and and performs this way at rallies you know um, yes. you know uh, you know pounds the pounds of the podium and of course he he, he runs for president four times you know and and sixty eight he gets a very significant what, what what does he end up with he definitely. Thirteen percent of the vote. Yeah, you know, and and he was and he was polling, you know, maybe in the end of the twenties, just maybe a month or so before yeah. the election. Nixon would, would not have been that close if he hadn't been running. Yeah, uh, the, the election between Nixon and Humphrey—that's the interesting thing that people forget about that. It's uh, and it, you know we could make a lot of connections between him and the pot. There, there always has been that populist element in American politics, mm-hmm. and he embodied it perfectly at that moment um, in a way that. Crossed, uh, I think it crossed races, <laughs> not at that time, um, uh, yeah, but not, not that, but it certainly crossed what had been uh, were otherwise conventional political divides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean he's running as a segregationist in nineteen sixty eight. He's defending, he's defending his record, and yep. and um, yeah, I mean it, it uh, yeah, it shows the appeal of, of that that kind of um, uh, that racial backlash, yes. you know, which Walls had. You know, started exploiting as really as early as his inaugural address because I mean, some of his inaugural address—the segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever—other um, lines are directed at at non-Southerners. Mm-hmm. You know, basically saying, "Hey, you know, you're you're in this fight with us. You know, against right. a, against the overreaching, you know, federal government trying to come down here and tell us, you know, how, how we're supposed to run our it's society." Completely new language for Southern segregationists in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but for for different reasons, yeah. I mean, uh, since lots of Southern, I'm thinking of uh, Senator Russell of Georgia was very much in favor of the federal government mm-hmm. coming down if it would like build a dam. 
Yeah. You know, or something like that. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. he certainly. Um, yeah, it, he is. Uh, so he represents defiance. He represents uh, persistence, pugnaciousness, all yeah. these so- sorts of things. And violence, too. And violence. And violence, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he talks, of, he, he, he doesn't engage in personal violence, but he... At rallies, you know, he speaks in these big at these big rallies, like in Madison Square Garden in 1968, and mm-hmm. he, he tells the audience, you know, referring to the race riots that are you know endemic in America at the time, you know, we have a riot. And paraphrasing some of it, but you know, we have a riot down in, in, in Alabama. You know, it's like we, you know, we basically we, we somebody picks up a brick, we we say point a gun at him, say you know put down the brick, or you're gonna get shot in the head. You know, yeah. um, and uh, you know, any egg kind of you know he. He says, uh, he refers to an incident in which a protester apparently had laid down in front of the president's limousine, and then, of course, the limousine had stopped and, you know, had to get the protester out of there. He said, you know, when I'm, in, when I'm, you know, when I'm president, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to stop the limousine, right. you know. And so, yeah, so he pledges this, this, this kind of violence against those who oppose what he stands for, yeah. whether they be, you know, feminists or, or, or black protesters or, uh, or anti-war he, protesters. He, he just doesn't give a damn. That's the, that's the, that's the... Even without the content, uh, what's what people find appealing? He's that's part of his that's part of his appeal, right? Yeah. I mean, it's 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 like uh, yeah, someone uh, forget exactly who it was, but you know, it's like um, it says, you know, saying you know he doesn't beat around the bush; he just comes right out and says it. Right. You know? just, it's very much who's the former Georgia governor who had the restaurant which he said he would never desegregate and sold axe handles. Oh, Lester Maddox. Les, of course, yeah. Lester yeah. Maddox, right. And the, the most weirdest juxtaposition of segregation in the South and New South, you could buy those at a souvenir shop in the underground mall in Atlanta, I think in the <laughs> 70s or even the 80s. Yeah. You know, that's just the weirdest. Well, uh, yeah, and another weird juxtaposition, juxtaposition too is that, I mean, he's, you know, is, when Jimmy Carter is the governor, yeah. uh, Lester Maddox is the is lieutenant governor, you right. know, and so, yeah, you have New South and Old South and co- not right. coexisting, but not standing <laughs> on kind of comfortably beside each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's talk about the band. How did a bunch of Canadians become, like, c- countercultural Southern music? I mean, well, there's one or two. They're in the Canadian, I checked this out, they're in the Canadian Rock Hall of Fame. They they are yeah um, so yeah, so there yeah I yeah. mean but you you came to this I think you 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 say in the introduction your original interest in this imaginings of the South came from thinking about Leonard Skinner so part, yeah part, are, there's partly. a big confusing ball of pop music I mean we could look at all the people that be Eric Clapton Queen yeah. all yeah. these people are getting this stuff out of that but yeah. the band the Altman Brothers uh, Leonard Skinner are getting something different out of it right or yeah um, well and you you know and you ask like how does the how does the band how to you know how to four canadians and one arkansan you yeah. know, kind of get get together and, and yeah i mean it, it started in in canada when in, you know in arkansas kind of an expatriate by the name of ronnie hawkins who was this kind of wild rock and roll showman um you know came up to canada and, and you know put together a rock and roll band and then he brought these guys who would later, um, he called them the Hawks, because Ronnie Hawk, Hawkins mm-hmm. and the Hawks, and they would later rename themselves the band and play on their own. But he took them to took them down to the deep south, you know, mm-hmm. to all these dives, really, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they honed their chops just playing, you know, loud, fast, dirty R&B and, and rock and roll. And so once they left, once they left Ronnie Hawkins, Bob Dylan picked him up, you know, he played behind, they played behind Dylan on his, on his uh, you know, 
famed electric <laughs> and not to, not universally well received electric tours in the United States and Britain. His electric betrayal. That's right. For those who care about such things. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Pete Seeger trying yeah. to get with the axe at the yeah. Newport, I think. And um, so yeah, um, right. So you know this 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 is a group that um, I, I I think is is really. I mean, its leader is Robbie Robertson. Yeah. You know, he's the principal songwriter. He's the he's the guitarist. And this is a guy who, you know, did a lot of reading in the South. You know, he when he was down there, he was just fascinated by the place. Well, well, as one is. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. well, you grew up in the Ozarks, so. Uh, mm-hmm. But as a South Jerseyan, uh, I do find, you know, this is we can argue about this, but I do find it fascinating uh, when a Southerner or someone asks me, "Why do you are interested in the South?" I, I always say it's because you're the other. Yeah, you're yeah. just different. So right. he's fast, and that's how we get the night they burned Old Dixie down. Right. Yeah, the night they drove Old Dixie. They drove Old Dixie right. down, and which is was a fascinating story. Let's tell a little bit about that story because I didn't know any of this, and that song always has bothered me. As you know, I've been against the lost cause since I was six or seven, yeah. and you know that. But tell about the story behind that because it's fascinating. Well, Robbie Robertson, yeah, he's working on working on a song for the for the band's second album. Their self their self titled album comes out in nineteen sixty nine. And they're living in the Hudson Valley of New York too. I want to make that clear. At the right, they're they're living yeah at, at, at this house called Big Pink. Yeah, it's a big it's a pink house. It's uh it's in uh, actually West West Socrates, New York. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, this kind of communal living arrangement, which makes them very attractive to the sure. to the hippie audience, of course. And yeah, he's he's interested in, in 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 the South and in the Civil War. And so, as he tells it, you know, he went to the local library and and Levon Helm, the one American, the one Southerner um, in the group, uh, helped him to write this song so that as um, I think as, as Helm ref- referred to it, uh, that Robert E. Lee would come out with all due respect. You know, so that kind of gives you an idea <laughs> of what he's doing. But it, it is, yeah. I mean, in short, the night they drove Old Dixie out is a it's a it's a mournful. Uh, owed, you know, to to the last days of the Confederacy, um, and it you know presents this kind of lost cause image of the South bravely bravely fighting against the, you know, the the, the Yankee tide and, and being and being overwhelmed by it. And it's written by a Canadian. It's just really yeah. It's written by living in a pink uh, commune. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, it's really fascinating. Right, and it's recorded in uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house. Which was, well, that uh, which I, that's was, even better. Which is often used as a recording studio. One of his houses. One of his pool houses. One of his, one, one of his many yeah, pool I'm sure houses. He had many, yeah. With excellent acoustics. Yeah, that was, that was the real yeah, yeah. acoustics. Right. Um, so where does this lead? What what, what, what do you make of this? Uh, I, I tell a little bit how what the hell? If there is ever an imagining, it's not, well, this is like a Canadian imagining of white southerners. That's what, true. This is, what, yeah. uh, it's, wah, what? What is going on over What's that? going yeah. on? Yeah. yeah. Unpack that. Well, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think, I think it, I think the band is, is a group that, you know, really explicitly does not and self-consciously does not want to follow at least musical trends mm-hmm. of the decade. So, you know, in the, the late 1960s, it's the, it's the era of acid rock. Sure. You know, um, you know light shows, uh, drop an acid to, you know, enjoy psychedelic music. And the band purposely wants to retreat away from that. You know, mm-hmm. so their sound is not that, you know. Um, you know, Levon Helm plays on wooden drums, you know. Um, they're, they don't have, you know, very, well, they have very few kind of rip-roaring, you know, guitar solos, uh, that kind of a thing. So they play together as a unit. It's not sh- not show-offy at, at, at really at all. 
their music. And so I think that kind of bleeds over into, into the subject matter. And, you know, it's like, um, uh, it's like Robertson would say, you know, it's like, how can you write about this, this world? You know, essentially this the world right now is crazy, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, so it's like he, I think he felt the need to kind of retreat musically and also in terms of subject matter, just almost into kind of another, another time period. So this is the countercultural South figure, the countercultural imagining of the South. It is a countercultural imagining of, of, the, of the South, but I think it's one that's very appealing to a mainstream audience yeah, as well, so. who just feels disoriented by the tumult. Well, it's very, I'll system. take my stand. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very agrarian in that yeah. way, don't you think? I mean, I, I do. And it, I think it even, uh, I was thinking about this. This is the, when you, when you make up categories like this, the danger is people start to mix them all together and uh-huh. overlap them. But there's, uh, the night they burned old Dick's, um, yeah, they, okay, I'll stop. Yeah. But it, it's the point of view of a Confederate soldier. Yeah. Uh, and there's definitely a masculine quality there, too. Mm-hmm. There's a mournful loss of freedom, of, you know, of, of having been defeated. Yeah. Having been in the fight and not leaving the victor. That's right. You know, there's there's that is involved in it too. Yeah. And he's a working man he's and working you know, man. he's relying on his working man values, you yeah. know, to get to get by. You know, lost a brother and you know. So how do you connect the uh, other two groups? Uh, why didn't Credence get in here? Uh, yeah, you know, it's you're right. I mean I that's mean, you yeah. can put it, I mean they are a lot of people think they come from Louisiana. That's right. Well yeah, when you say when you say burning like Boynton, it's yeah. like yeah, it's hard to figure out where they come from. But um, yeah, you know, I, it's I, yeah, I, I did toy with with putting credence in there because I think that, I think that yeah, they're imagining this kind of um, kind of bayou, yeah. bayou South. You know, John Fogarty is a California kid. You know, he's talking about, I think Green River. You know, the famed song Green River is about someplace in California, but it sounds like he's talking about, you know, somewhere in Louisiana. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it's, I don't know if he's as political about it. The band would like to think it's apolitical, but it's, it's a very political group. Um, I, think, I think he, but I think he, at least musically, I think Fogarty is driven by the same desire to, to, to forge a different path, um, to do something different mm-hmm. than what his peers are doing at the time, to, to, to simplify things, uh-huh. you know. And, and, and Leonard Skinner is, I mean, and we all knew this at the time, because... I knew a lot of guys in the 80s with Leonard Skinner stickers on the back of their truck. And what they were saying is they're rebel macho. That's right, yeah. Uh, that's I mean, right. And they're that's... not even necessarily, they could, I didn't know any uh, African American guys with Leonard Skinner, but mm-hmm. I don't think what it, for some of the guys who had that, yeah. it just symbolized that we don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very much the Wallace thing. We're just like, we're rebels mm-hmm. and we're macho. Right. And as soon as we get out of high school, we'll start chewing tobacco too. That's right. Or something like that. And at least smoke a cigarette. Right. Or well, five. Yeah, I mean, it's part of, yeah, you have to, we have to understand kind of the meaning, what the Confederate flag had come to mean to a lot of mean, Americans yeah, by exactly. the 1970s, yeah. which is, um, I think, you know, as one person at the time said, it could come to mean just kind of any kind of generalized gripe, you know, against authority, essentially, mm-hmm. or the government, or, yeah. or, or, or whatever. So, I mean, obviously, we know it's impossible to, to de-racialize the flag, but I think for a lot of people, a lot of white folks in the 70s, they, you know, they, they really, they were not thinking about it, you know, explicitly I think they, in those terms. Yeah, they were, I mean, well, it's it's a chicken and egg problem yeah. there, um, but a lot of people are doing it to poke, you know, just, I'm the kind of guy that puts up the rebel flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to be provocative. Yeah. To be provocative. And now we have Twitter instead. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but, you know, but Leonard Skinner certainly used it, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of back and forth about, oh, you know, well, you know, they would say, well, we, it wasn't our idea, it was the record company's idea, and now we stopped flying it, and, but, you know, as late as 1977, shortly before the plane crash that killed, you know, some of the members of the band and kind of ended the first version of Leonard Skinner, they were, you know, there were concerts where they were still using, using the flag, and sure. so yeah. I don't think they, I don't think they really had a big problem with it at the time. No, you point out, they, and they always came on stage Dixie. Yeah, often they would have yeah, an orchestrated version of, of, of Dixie. Yeah, yeah. Here's a southern band, everybody. Mm -hmm. is, 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 you is, can't is, miss that. Yeah. Um, how is Jimmy Carter an apotheosis of all these imaginings? I mean, do, are people able to see in him any one of these things or multiple things? I think so. I mean, he, he, he draws together so many of those positive imaginings and negative imaginings too because you know a lot of people oppose Carter just because he is from the south right. and they, he talks funny yeah he, he talks funny yeah and he, yeah he must be a redneck or a hillbilly right. or, or, or racist I mean, or closet I look at his brother I mean you know obviously well, although uh, I think it's John Reed uh, John Shelton Reed who, who quotes uh, Billy Carter as the best differentiator between redneck and white trash <laughs> Billy Carter said redneck yeah. drinks beer while driving and puts his empties in a bag uh -huh. white trash throws him out the window <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they, the, the Carter campaign, he was a little bit embarrassed by Billy, Billy at various times. Um, but I think once, once he, once he kind of began to Billy, human, Billy began to kind of humanize um, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy and, and and get rid of. I think I think it was um, I think it was Larry L. King, you know, who said that kind of got got rid of a little bit of Jimmy's official piety, you know, yeah, as yeah. it was. Then he, I think he went from uh, the quote is he, you know, Billy went from being the uh, the closet redneck of the Carter family to the token redneck, you know, so let's bring him out, you know, and, <laughs> right. show, and show him off, you know. Yeah, it's like every Southern family has one. Mm -hmm. It's like every Italian-American family of more than two brothers yeah. has a sort of all the same mixture, you yeah. know, the yeah. the striver and the, you know, and the, you know, yeah. I, I'm making gesture, hand gestures, which doesn't work on the podcast. <laughs> but anyways, yes. That's, but, but yeah, I mean, it, Carter, did, he did bring it, he did in many ways bring it all together. Yeah. I mean, so he's like the son, the son of the rural South. And so, you know, it lends him a certain authenticity. Um, he is, you know, somebody who, you know, it, 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 you know, at worst was a moderate, you know, during the civil rights era and, you know, it turned into, didn't turn into a liberal, you know, mm -hmm. got up. Ran a pretty conservative campaign as yeah, governor of Georgia, much more than his previous record. Yeah, and you know, race. There was some race baiting going on associated with his campaign. But once once he gets to be governor, one might say it was cynical. Um, I one think, might say it was cynical. Yeah, uh, inviting in fact, George Wallace to come speak in the state. I mean, that's yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, you know, uh, what is it? You know, declaring National Armed Services Day yeah. in in support of you know William Calley. You know the the. Uh, the, the yeah, army yeah. officer who I was got that my lie yeah. was yeah who was yeah. who was prosecuted for me lying yeah. yeah yeah exactly so but but anyway but but anyway. But, but he's but he's seen as 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 as, um, as the as the Ford campaign Gerald mm -hmm. Ford's campaign I think accurately says that Jimmy Carter is is this kind of combination between the good old boy rural South and the black and white together mm -hmm. South so it's mm -hmm. like this old traditional rural South with this kind of old, the best of the old South and the best of the new South and he's a sneaker submarine engineer. Who, who raises peanuts? I mean, it's really right. just you know, it's it's frightening if you're if you're campaigning against him because he's got all that. That's right. He's, well, it's like William, the journalist William Lee Miller would call him. He's the Yankee from Georgia. Yeah. You know? He's he's this kind of you know technocrat from Plains. So right. he's, he's this you know, yeah, interesting hybrid. So there are many different ways of interpreting him. I was uh, fascinated by the Vernon Jer Jordan quote. He said, um, "Geez, I hope I 
highlight it. Yeah. He said, um, Vernon Jordan, executive director of the Urban League, said in contrast to, quote, basically paternalistic northern liberals, the southern white man who gets converted to the cause, why, he would die for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that means it's like you, you, you know... You know, like what a what a white man during the civil rights era who stands up yeah. for civil rights. You know, you know what he would be up against. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you know, you know that he's not just going to be you know doing it just just for show because he's he's going to he's going to get a lot of a Harlem guff. A Harlem resident told the Washington Post simply, "I respect a good Southern white man because he's not a hypocrite," right. which reminds me of the Southern joke. Uh, that Southerners don't mind living next to a black man if he doesn't pretend he's equal, and whites in the North don't mind uh, pretending uh, they're equal to the black man as long as they don't live next to him. Right, right. Yeah, so, that's a Southern true. African American joke I've heard. Right, right, right. Well, George Wallace probably could have told that joke. He could have told. He could have yeah, told that yeah, joke. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. You Northerners, like, right? You don't. Yeah. You're, you know, you're 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 more racist than we are. Is what yeah, you, something what like that. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's uh, that's a separate book about the sh- sh- the sharing or li- uh, the weird ways of transracial um, shared perceptions of, e- of each other. But yeah. um, let's talk about method. Uh, and premises. Okay, let's disagree. Let's yeah, let's disagree. Maybe, maybe we okay, will. Okay. I think we will. Okay. I, I actually think that uh, we can both eat our cake and also admire it on the in the bakery shelf. Okay. Um, I like that. No, I, I don't think. Uh, yeah, I don't think that. But how did you go about doing this? I mean, this is this started with a, a paper in graduate school. And yeah, I mean, you know, it started as a, as a seminar paper. Well, that's what they always say in graduate school, you know, think about think about where you could publish this thing, you know. It's, like, it's always a tall order. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it started in a, yeah, it started in a research, pop cult, 20th century pop culture research seminar at Purdue, uh-huh. Purdue University. Yeah. And what was your, were you just listening to music? I mean, what was, what was your, where did you have to do your research? Well, you know, I think... Um, yeah, you know, the music was, I think, the entry point. Yeah. I've always been interested in, for a long time, I've been interested in country music and, co- and country rock music, mm-hmm. which is just kind of in the 60s, a lot of, you know, West Coast, often like long-haired bands, rock bands, you know, starting to, 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 to experiment with country music, you know, mm-hmm. like the Birds, for example. And, um, you know, Dylan does it as mm-hmm. well. And so that, that was that was the entry point. In, ter- in terms of the research, I mean, for, for that kind of stuff, looking at country rock, I... I wanted to know, like you know, who's who's listening to this? Who's the audience yeah, for it? Yeah. And if, you know, it's not a it's not a commercially viable genre really until the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt pick it up in the in the seventies, in the mid seventies. Yeah, I forgot Linda Ronstadt was into country rock. Yeah, yeah, and she's there pretty early too, yeah. um, before she really hits it hits it big. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a fairly. Um, large countercultural audience. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, some countercultures are like, oh, country music, the South, that's redneck noise. That's redneck noise. And we could, no- tr- noise, and we could trace like it all the way back, and you do to Alan Lomax recordings, and, and, and yeah. Pete Seeger, and yeah. Dylan, and then, you know. Right, right. In a certain way, I mean, hip folks, like, yeah. you know, hippies, you know, enjoying country music, it makes a certain amount of sense because, yeah. you know, they, they've already been, you know, into folk music, folk music and it's, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a long step to just, you no. know, get into country music to, to get into the Carter family and then you get into Hank Williams and then you get into Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash and so it's and all you, and you're done yeah. you're dead yeah well that, yeah, that's where they want to end it right? Yeah, right they don't They don't want that they don't hippies um, like a lot of Nashville types too at the time they don't They don't like that Nashville sound that they Nashville don't they, sound yeah, they want to hear steel guitars they want to hear fiddles they only you know? want Porter Wagoner after he repents and <laughs> 
puts down his shiny sequin suits yeah. and you know sings you know whatever to a one guitar whatever yeah well but you know but the Flying Burrito Brothers the band that Grant Parsons <laughs> and Chris Hillman form you know they they were the they were the newbie suits you know because I talked to Chris Hillman and he said you know because that's that's what you did you know that's what country performers did they wore these bright garish you know nudie suits that that you were wearing the costume to play that music so, yeah so that so that you know kind of great inauthenticity became its own form of authenticity in a, sure. in a weird in a which, weird way which is often the case which is often the case but in for that kind of research, I mean, the counter countercultural research, I'm looking at a lot of underground newspapers of the really? 1960s and 1970s. To see, like, reader response. I mean, listener response. List, some listener response. You get some people writing in letters, uh -huh. and you get other people just, like, writing, writing, like, for example, an article in the Berkeley Barb in 1969 called The Politics of Country Rock. You know, what mm -hmm. does it mean that Bob Dylan, you know, is getting together with Johnny Cash like who's listening to John? Who's Johnny Cash's audience? Like, ooh, it's a bunch of yeah. bunch of you know rednecks right, right and anti semites. Right and, after it says conversion experience, you know, uh, whatever that's sixty seven, sixty eight, or whatever. Uh, well, that's that was a, he, he, his Christian experience, Christian experience is about a decade later. But he had, he had, he arguably had some other conversion yeah. experience after he, he fell off his motorcycle right, in nineteen sixty six, and he goes in seclusion and starts recording with what later becomes the band and everything. Yeah, yeah he goes in a different musical direction. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so I mean, for that, yeah, it was a lot of uh, a lot of re research and you know the hippie the hippie writings of the of, of the time, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating <laughs> place to, resi <laughs> to reside. Yeah. So and so that's what you mean by imaginings. I mean, you're not looking at what Southern think about the South. Well, I mean, yeah. but Southerners, I mean, you know, it's American imagining. So Southerners sure. are obviously Americans, and we're, are. we're including their discussions as, as well. And so, um, but you're looking at a Berkeley alternative newspaper. That's true. To see what people are thinking about the same for that. For yeah. yeah, but also, I mean, I'm also looking in that chapter at uh, at the great at the great speckled bird, which is an Atlanta underground newspaper. Mm -hmm. You know, there there are, there are, you know, there's obviously a counterculture in the South as well. So know? so what is an imagining? Because I, I I love the concepts and yeah. you know what's the imagining of something. I mean it's a, it's a fantasy. I mean it's a it's a it's, it's so there it's are your no, impression. There's of no something. southern masculinity. Oh, there is. Oh, there certainly but is. But it might be different from what people imagine. That's it to that's be. exactly right. Yeah, it's a per, it's it's perception versus reality. It's yeah. what it's what it is. You know, so the perception may be based in reality. Uh, it may it may not. Southern teenagers don't act like Bo and Luke and the Dukes of Hazzard. I, you know, not not that I've seen. I mean, no. you grew up in the Ozarks, so I mean, that's where they were. Yeah, it's good. yeah. Hazard yeah. County, Georgia, but there could be Hazard County, Southern Missouri. I don't know. But. Yeah, it'd be Greene County, Green. where, I, where I'm from. Yeah, no, I, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I don't, I don't, but I, that's what we mean by imaginings. We we project we project things on the people. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, you th you th when people hear them from the Ozarks, um, you know, they first of all we have a debate about whether that's the South or yes. not. You know, go on. Because <laughs> I, I, you know, because I, I don't know that I don't know that it is. I've never considered myself a Southerner. Border I, state. Yeah, mm. yeah. Right. Exactly. It is Southern Missouri, um, but um, but it was in Unionist area. So what do you yeah, do with it, what do you do with them? But um, you're right next to all the people that that were killing you and. You were killing the people in the county next door, you know. That's like, that's the, the oh yes, in the, in the border yeah, yeah, the border right. wars yeah, sure. of the eighteen fifties. Yeah, um, yeah. Fortunately, I was not there. But, no, exactly. Um, but, yeah, that, um, that did not happen to your family. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but um, but but yes, you know that's that's a very you know my experience is a very much kind of a kind of a suburbanish you know mm -hmm. experience, um, you know, uh, not 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 the rural dukes, uh, not the no, rural dukes. No, certainly not. Means, yeah. 
Um, there's also the, the foundation is, and this is where I, I want to push back a little bit, is, mm-hmm. is you are very influenced by uh, Laster and, and Crispino's um, Myth of Southern Exceptionalism, mm-hmm. which came out just in 2010. Jeez, it, it, yeah, it's not that long Not ago. that long ago. Yeah. Um, and could you summarize their thesis and what you find persuasive about it? Well, I, I mean, I think that the thesis is kind of embedded in the in the title. So there's this kind of notion that the South has, has had, you know, historically has, has experienced this kind of, you know, unique trajectory that that differs from from the larger, you know, American, the larger American experience. And uh, and I and and Crispino and Lasser want to kind of turn that on its head. So it's an edited collection, and so the chapters, you know, just give. Different arguments, different examples of the way in which, um, on whatever issues we might be talking about, mass incarceration or, or racism, um, you know, the trying to make the case that the non-South and the, and the South, you know, have not had really diametrically, you know, opposed traje- trajectories, but um, in many ways have been similar. Mm. You know. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not uh, buying it. Yeah. No. Well. I mean, it's it's a it's always a question of degree, isn't it? Well, I think that's right. You know? I mean, uh, if we want to say the South is a separate uh, country within the United States, well, you know, yeah. just hang on a minute. Yeah. Um, but I think the South is different. I think New England is different. Mm-hmm. I think the Midwest is a little different. I think you, and I and I don't think that regional history is, you know, uh, object somehow on its face objectionable. Um, right, and I think uh, Crispin and Lasser are, are are contributing to why the Southern Historical Association annual program is getting a little boring. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we're all pushing against cash mm-hmm. and the mind of the South. I mean, you, mm-hmm. uh, who can begin a book about conceptualizing the South without talking about cash? And you do, mm-hmm. and God knows uh, he's wrong about everything. <laughs> yeah. um, but he's wrong in interesting ways. Right, he's in- yeah, he's interesting. And I'm not sure that in the end Laster and Crespino are wrong in interesting ways. I think they're right in uninteresting ra- ways. How do you mean? Like, where do you that? Mean? Yeah, the South is part of a larger cultural and social mm-hmm. uh, milieu. Mm-hmm. It's part of a uh, interesting polity, but I and but I don't see it. Um, the South was a slave society. Mm-hmm. Massachusetts was a society with slaves in it. Right. Pennsylvania was a society with slaves in it. Um, the northern Newcastle County, Delaware, was a society with slaves in it. Sussex County, Delaware, was a slave society. Mm-hmm. Maryland was a slave society. These are societies which are dependent, in some ways, define themselves by the existence of slavery and racial sla- and and black slavery. That's a huge difference between. The North and the South, and it just it just is. Yeah, um, I would agree with you. I mean, certainly polit- right. political hierarchies mm-hmm. are very different. Um, you know, as we've got a I think a podcast which we've already um, aired. I don't know what it does. Dropped uh, by the time uh, you uh, have heard this one. Uh, we talk. I talked with Brent Tarter at the Library of Virginia. Now, and he and I, he finds state history more important than regional history. Mm-hmm. Peace. But one of the interesting things about Virginia is how hierarchical it remains socially and politically up until the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the intended or unintended consequences of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. that it also removes a political hierarchy which keeps poor and even lower middle class whites out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's 
you know, really fascinating. How does it last that long? Yeah, yeah. Sixteen nineteen to nineteen sixty. What lasts that long in America? Yeah. You know, uh, and, but it does that in a way. Sure, Philadelphia is a hierarchical as well. I would argue, but in, in parts of, but other states are different. Other regions are different in mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Right, I mean, you know, certainly there is Jim Crow in the North, but the way that it functions in the South, I would argue, is 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 distinctive and and more all encompassing. You it know, is in the, in the Southland. You know, it's extraordinarily all encompassing right. in ways that in ways that I, I think, uh, not just undergraduates. I mean, what do they know? Mm-hmm. But but even really well-read, intelligent people uh, don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people don't understand the sort of the coup d'etats of the 1890s, um, the Wilmington race, so-called, uh, which is a coup d'etat, uh, right. the coup d'etat against the North Carolina Republican machine, yeah. which is and the, uh, populace, the yeah. pop. And there's the Pitchers. South Carolina they, pitchfork Ben Tillman, mm-hmm. the series of of rebellions um, okay. against the previous order. Uh, that impose racial violence at immense cost, and they don't understand how all. And no, they don't understand how all encompassing it is. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would say that, and that's, we could go on. Uh, those are two examples. Certainly, the slave society, and then the all encompassing nature of Southern segregation, mm-hmm. I think, are, are 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 two things. I think the hierarchy thing is another thing. Um, well, but, I was just going to say real quick, though. I mean, I think yeah. on the issue of civil rights, though. Um, race and civil rights, it can, they can, you know, offer a, a helpful corrective, you know, in terms of the very Southern-centric civil rights narrative. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know by kind of pushing us to, to understand, this is something that's still just kind of being, really kind of being investigated, it's kind of a frontier of scholarship, of kind of understanding the civil rights you yeah. know, movement of in, 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 in the North. You're saying, how, oh, yes. How pervasive it was. I mean, so, and also, and also, to, I mean, the most Probably the most, I think, the, the, the textbook picture of lynching that's most widely known is actually from Marion, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it would be, it's ridiculous to say that lynchings only happen in the South. I think actually per capita they happen more often in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're of everybody. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they're of, but yeah. they're of blacks, too. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's certainly plenty of, there's lots of racial violence in lynching in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and for very interesting reasons. That's one of the reasons why Oregon voted for Breckenridge in the 1860 election. It's mm-hmm. very weird, but true. So there is that. I, I'm, that's yeah. why I say that they're right, yeah. but not in an interesting way. Um, there's, well, I don't know. I, there, mean, there's, there's, I can stipulate all that and still yeah. say that the racial, the, race, the racial hegemony in the South... Uh, there, there still is a South on a sort of uh, on a visible basis. Yeah. I can still, and I can, you know. Again, I still think it's helpful to kind of corrective to kind of reintegrating the South into the national it, nar- I, narrative. And that is extremely. That, that's yeah. the right part. That's yeah. where I believe they're correct. Yeah. Um, what are you doing? What are you working on now? As we're winding this down, what are you thinking about after after this? Where, where are you going to go next? Well, I'm still thinking about Jimmy Carter, actually. Yeah, so I see. I'm, we've got a Jimmy Carter bobblehead. Yeah, on the we show. Do, we do. That's right. That's my yeah. My wife, my wife gave that to me after, <laughs> after the book was done. So yeah, she uh, she uh, she she know she knows the what, what where my heart lies. But um, yeah, you know the the image of Jimmy Carter, I think, is one that's really interesting. And so I'm just you know very much in the kind of the, the formulating stage, but just trying to think about. You know, we, we talk about the age of Reagan. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about, you know, Gil Troy talks about the age of Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we talk about all these different presidential ages. And um, 
you know, I'm thinking of a primary project, you know, tentatively titled Jimmy Carter's America that would that would kind of try to, you know, would take seriously Jimmy Carter as a, as a consequential figure. You know, somebody who's whose background and, and whose ideas on, you know, foreign policy, domestic policy, and in some ways reflected the the spirit of the times uh-huh. of the 1970s and perhaps and perhaps uh, beyond, and also, you know, impacted those, those uh, you know, the, the, the times in which, in which he lived. The so, year of the evangelical? Was, the year, the was, year, that, was that 76, I think? The year of the, yeah, the, the year of the evangelical and, yeah. um, you know. Um, the New so, South, uh, the, you know, the moving south because it's warm, mm-hmm. even though they talk funny. Right, yeah, yeah. right. Um, you know, uh, more of a comfort with, with feminism, yeah. um, which Carter embraces, you know, uh, largely embraces. And certainly that um, was the whole ERA movement was very much part of his those those years. That's right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and, and, and his wife, uh, Rosalind, is definitely an ally on mm-hmm. that, although they don't quite see eye to eye with people like Bella Abzug and, uh, and others, but uh, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But but also just in terms of foreign policy, you know, kind of the, the move toward human rights, but then also the, you know, Carter dialing back on detente, you mm-hmm. know, with the Soviet Union. So, um there's a recent book by a, by one of Carter's advisors, Stu Eisenstadt, that mm-hmm. you know tries to kind of make the case that Carter was a good president, mm-hmm. uh, not a great president, but a good president. And I'm, I'm a little not sure of how successfully he's in arguing that, but I think one of the things he, he does do is um, is yeah something that I want to expand on, which is to show yeah Carter was Carter was meaningful. You know, mm-hmm. he wasn't just um, just kind of sitting sit in the Oval Office and just letting events kind of overwhelm him. There was some of that, but but also he was somebody, I think, who, who tells us more about the era than maybe we've given him credit for. Yeah, the, the, or that uh, the political culture that formed him or and that latched onto him, appropriated him, saw him, put put their hopes on him. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly enough, it's, those are a lot of the same people that actually then do that for Reagan as well. Um, yeah, and so right. that so that there's a, there's an interesting continuity um, rather mm-hmm. than discontinuity. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, the evangelicals largely abandoned Carter in the, in the 1980 election, and and uh, you know a lot of those Southerners who who vote for, for and, Carter and, and also and Northern Democrats, and Northern Democrats. Looking at looking at the looking at the map. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 1980 map. So, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my guest today has been Zachary J. Lechner. Uh, he's the author of *The South of the Mind: American Imaginings of White Southerness*, 1960-1980, published by the University of Georgia Press. It's in their series *Politics and Culture in the 20th Century South*. Uh, Zach, it's been uh, fun driving down. I-64 in the rain to have this conversation. It's been fun sitting in my own office (laughs) waiting for you, Al. It's very convenient for me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. Thank you.